Full disclosure, I am Robin Farzad. Traditionally, retail banking is not a massively high profit business. The margins are not that huge. At that point, you have to say to yourself, the margins are not that huge the way it's being done at the moment because the costs are so enormous. You know, banks typically spend about half of everything they take in just on branches and stuff like that, and then you add in their terrible computers and it's more. So if you had neither of those things, you could do banking, perhaps with higher profit margin. But at the moment, Apple's tech business, the sorts of things that it goes into, they are nowhere near as low as the sort of margins that you get in retail banking. Yes, we'd use it, but they wouldn't want to do it at that sort of price. Technology has disrupted so many stodgy industries, from book selling to music, remember the compact disc, to newspapers and even taxis. Now to disrupt the global banking system. Tens of trillions of dollars, euros, yen and yuan are in play. The Economist magazine explains its latest cover story, Tech's Raid on the Banks. Kind sirs and madams, do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments. With more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining us from London, Helen Joyce, finance editor at The Economist. She penned the special cover package this week, Tech's Raid on the Banks. A bank in your pocket, indeed. I'm fascinated by this, Helen. I can't wait to wonk out with you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And of course, I'm never going to resist the chance to... to um, plug these other Brits, Yes, which I love. And I started your show with the unreleased track Money from 1978. Um, I, I just can't resist the urge to plug Yes. But I digress as I normally do. I'm fascinated by um, the rapid disappearance of cash across both the developed and emerging worlds. Like I personally, I don't know how indicative I am of everyone. I only take money out of the ATM when I'm getting a haircut. And I use my smartphone wherever I can to make Apple Pay payments. I have this clip on the back of my iPhone that keeps my three credit cards. I never take my wallet anywhere. Well, you're not that unusual anymore at all. I mean, I went to Asia where people really don't even bother with the cards. They didn't even go through the card phase. They just went straight on to using their phones. And uh, to them, I seemed very old fashioned with my credit card. I just found, you know, in China, you can't get someone to take a credit card except in hotels where there are lots of tourists or, you know, in the airport or places like that. And, you know, people actually sort of laughed and said things like, gosh, that's tragic when you explained to them that back in Europe, you know, you couldn't just bring your phone everywhere and pay for absolutely everything. You know, you can literally tip people, uh, you know, a musician on the street or something like that. You can tip with your phone. Yeah, and I was talking to a doorman in New York. I lived there for 10 years, and he's lamenting that with the disappearance of cash, especially in taxis and the preponderance of Ubers and Lyfts replacing the yellow cabs, that no one is coming out with change from that 20 to tip the doorman anymore. And you, you must shed a tear, too, for the occasional pickpocket. I mean, if anybody isn't carrying cash, it's really kind of a frictionless society. Well, a friend told me recently that there's a new scam going in some places, which is to do with having your contactless uh, cards on your phone, which is to wave around the, the readers near people's back pockets and see if anyone can just, you know, anyone is just touching their 
their phone at the time and you can get a payment that they didn't even authorize. I think we're living in a Black Mirror episode. But I am interested. You you did you did touch on the fact that uh, the majority of your reporting took you to uh, developing Asia. And I, I was doing a story for Business Week on Sub-Saharan Africa in 2007 and was struck that you could go into a township in Soweto or Joburg and uh, people who didn't have fixed line communications or even... Um, uh, access to electricity, had SIM cards and phones and would get paid through services that were largely portable. It became a cashless economy far in advance of Western Europe or the United States. So it seems like a lot of the innovation is starting in places like Southeast Asia, China, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, exactly. The thing is that once you get locked into a system which has maybe a lot of infrastructure, as banks do, or as credit cards do, or you know, if you take petrol pumps in oil stations, you've created a system for doing things, and then it would be very expensive to do something else, even if it's better. Whereas um, in China, you know, the banks didn't really serve just ordinary people very well. They were very directed towards, and they still are, by the way, the, the traditional banks, they're very directed towards uh, companies, lending to companies, and it's quite state-directed a lot of the time. So ordinary people didn't have the level of banking, you know, consumer banking that you and I would have in Europe or in America. So there was white space. Then everybody gets phones. And um, one of the things that I really thought was very interesting when doing the reporting for this, this package for The Economist was the way that these very bank-like companies, companies like um, like Ant Financial uh, in China, the way that they grew up in a new uh, system where they started with retail or they started with chat apps and step-by-step step they grow in to provide things that are like quite wide range of financial services. But anyway, the, one of the reasons they were able to grow is that there was white space for them to grow into. There's, mm. There is not that white space in America or Europe. You know, we already have credit cards. So even though it'd be more convenient not to bother with credit cards at all and just use your phone, well, we've got credit cards and they're not that bad. They didn't have well, credit cards. Well, is the white space, and we'll get to this, perhaps uh, generational in the United States? Because I'm thinking in reading this great package, which really you must pick up the May 4th to 10th issue of The Economist, Text Rate on the Banks uh, by Helen Joyce, there is a stickiness of traditional banking. In business school, you're always taught about network effects versus multi-homing and the difficulty of opening up a new account, uh, getting uh, the power of attorney signatures. It almost seems by design to kind of say the path of least resistance is just keep my money in there, even if I'm not thrilled with the bank, versus I, I believe like the Trojan horse aspect of Facebook. If you look at where Facebook was a decade ago or 12 years ago, and then it branched out, and then you have Messenger, which is ubiquitous on your phone. You can even have Messenger without the Facebook. App. Then they add payment functionality to Messenger. Then WhatsApp they acquire, and you can pay people directly through WhatsApp. The smartphone is the ultimate foot in the door or horse that's there, and they can ultimately add uh, functionality to whether you're talking about a text message from Apple to Apple user, a Venmo payment. Um, the, the, the friction of kind of adding an app and multi-homing is not nearly as difficult as opening up a new account with a traditional financial services firm. Well, exactly. And I mean, even opening an account with a traditional financial services firm on your phone is really, really easy. So I did that for the special report. You know, I mean, you can't see me, but, you know, so that you can paint a picture. I'm a 50 year old. I am, you know, I'm not particularly an early adopter of technology myself. By chance, I was an early adopter of Internet banking about 20 years ago. And the result is that I didn't bother moving to mobile banking because the Internet banking was convenient enough. But for this special report, I did. I opened an online account with one of Britain's neobanks that are mobile phone only. And it's two minutes. You know, you, you scan your passport, you give it your thumbprint, you do a selfie video, and they are able to verify your your, um, your identity with that. 
and then you have an account and it's just so much better. But yeah, you're right about the generational thing too. I only did that because I was writing this special report. But young people really do live on their phones. I mean, the genesis of this special report was my colleague uh, Ludwig Ziegler, who was our tech editor at the time and is now based in Silicon Valley for us. And he said to me, you should write about young people and money. It's different. The way they think about money, the way they handle money is different because money has become not physical for them. Sure. You know, I'm old enough to remember piggy banks or, you know, my parents budgeting for things with jam jars that they literally put cash into. Uh, Young children now don't tend to see very much money. Their parents buy online or they just bring a card or their phone to the supermarket. Uh, They themselves buy a lot of things on the internet. Maybe they're buying in-app purchases in games like Fortnite. And how do they learn what money is and what the value of money is and how do you budget? So that was actually the genesis of the report was the the generational gap that you were talking about. So does this frustrate? I was was struck by uh, much of this. And you talk about China and ant and and going into far off regions and even a a small merchant of food or radishes or something being able to take for granted that the infrastructure is robust and trustworthy enough for for peer-to-peer payments over smartphones. How is it that... uh, you know, the, the the system in the United States is really entrenched with too big to fail banks, but the government effectively runs the banks in China. How have they seeded this? How have they been okay seeding this to third-party tech companies? Step by step without realizing what was happening at first. I mean, of course, they've woken up to it now. So if we go back... Um about 2000 or 2001, I think it was, that uh, Alibaba launched. And it was just an online uh, retail um, site, rather like the um, Chinese eBay, let's say. And it was so difficult to pay online that they ended up setting up a payment system. And that was what Alipay became. And then Alipay, you know, the phone, the mobile phone came along at the right point. Alipay then became person to person. It then became what they call a super app which is it's not like just one app that you open on your phone. It's like you open, you know, 100 apps at one go. You open up the Alipay app and there's all these different buttons you can save. You can buy, pay your electricity bill. You can buy cinema tickets. You can call a car. You know, all the things that you would do in different apps in other countries you do in that one app. Then they um, allowed savings in it. And suddenly the savings money market fund became like the biggest in the world, just like almost instantaneously as people just put their spare cash in it. No, it happened with PayPal. It happened with PayPal in the States too. And PayPal was was immediately, I mean, that was a, a, a product, if I remember, of eBay. When eBay went public, it was spun out of eBay. But again, we come back to this white space thing. So this this ladder of, you know, going from one service to another, to another, to another was just available in China. And the regulators didn't do anything, really. I, I, I think they just didn't realize how far it was going. And then they got a bit scared. So they have clamped down and they are forcing, um, it's not just um, Alipay and Ant Financial, There's, their big rival is WeChat Pay, which comes out of a big um, gaming and uh, social conglomerate. Um, And that's where you see the payment alongside the chat app. WeChat is the one that all the Chinese people use. So anyway, both of these companies have become really, really big players really fast because there was kind of no regulation. No one realized it was happening. And now the government is starting to think, you know, gosh, these are growing so big so fast. What do we need to do? How do we get oversight of them? How do we see the flows of money in the system? But they kind of had to scramble to put that on on top after these things have become so big. Well, this is what I don't understand structurally. You can't, I think at least from the U.S. regulatory perspective, you can't just decide to reconstitute or or have a functionality as a financial services firm. There are all these regulatory hoops you have to jump through. But if you're an Apple, for example, with Apple Pay or the credit cards that they already have on the Apple Store, iTunes Store, 
the entire transaction, like if I pay at a, at a Starbucks with the app or if I pay at a Walgreens uh, pharmacy with the app, that's linked to my American Express card. My point is it's contingent upon a traditional financial services relationship, and that is the weak part in the system. They're not controlling the entirety of the transaction. They're dependent upon a traditional bank, and it's the same with Google Pay. Yeah, so that's very true in developed markets. And actually, it's true in China as well. You link a traditional bank account to your Alipay account. It's not true everywhere. Um, so, for example, in poorer Southeast Asian countries, you know, most people aren't banked. The three quarters of the population or so is not banked at all. And what happened there, it's not as advanced, but it's another really interesting way of going up a ladder towards financial services. And it started with ride hailing. Hmm. So what you have is you've ride hailing. So if you imagine Uber or Lyft, but you imagine that you don't have a credit card or a bank account, so obviously you're going to have to pay in cash. So what these platforms did was they just matched the driver and the um, the ride hailer who has to then pay in cash. And this means the drivers are carrying around a lot of cash and that they have to be able to make change and so on. So they started to think how... They, the, the firms that I'm talking about, they're called Grab and Gojek. They're the two big rivals in the region. They're in many countries. They start to think, how can they, um, you know, how can they deal with this cashless, this cash problem? And they looked at the way that people in the region use their mobile phones. Um, they don't tend to have contracts, as you might in a rich country. They tend to prepay. They buy some credit and they buy it in uh, kiosks or in convenience stores. So they start to allow people to top up in cash at convenience stores or even with the driver their account. So suppose you're getting into your taxi and the fare is going to be, you know, five whatevers. You might give the driver 25 whatevers and there in your presence, he'll top up your version of the app with the extra 20. Now, the next time you take a ride, you don't need to take cash. So in other countries, in other countries, at least you're allowed to make that market. You're allowed to be the the intermediary. Yeah, what you're doing is basically the equivalent of what telecoms firms are doing when they allow you to buy credit on the phone. I mean, that's really the analogy. And then from there, um, you're providing a service to people, which means they don't have to carry around cash or make change, but you're also gaining a lot of data. And that's a very big part of this story is that traditionally banks make their money from spreads. They, they make their money from, you know, taking in money and giving people a low interest rate on their savings and then lending it back out again and making a higher in, charging a higher interest rate for that. Of course, that's still a business model. But what those banks didn't do was to study the flow of money in and out of people's pockets and think, you know, when I say think, no human being is thinking it, it's AI, but think, you know, what could I, what else could I sell this person? Mm, this person, you know, could maybe be tempted to buy this sort of thing if they go past this sort of shop, you know, all those data related things. So these firms that are not lending money, they're not charging interest rate spreads or anything like that, but they are seeing your transactions. And with that, they can hopefully try to sell you other things or advertise you stuff or turn their um, app into a platform where you can buy other things. And of course, they take a cut. So if it all works, and that's a big if, it's a new business model for banking, for retail banking. I'd like to quote from your leader on the the Economist cover story this week. You wrote that mobile-only neobanks, you call them, that do not bear the cost of branches are nibbling at the customer basis of of the traditional financial services firms. So, um, And you're saying the pace of change will accelerate. Younger people will no longer stay with the same bank as their parents. 15% of British 18 to 23-year-olds use a neobank. Tech firms that people trust, such as Apple and Amazon, are natural candidates to grow big financial arms. The biggest four American banks are spending a total of over $25 billion a year on perfecting better customer applications and learning to mine data more cleverly. And you point out by way of comparison, venture capital firms invested $37 billion in upstart financial f- services firms last year. So I was thinking it's not just a too big to, 
too big to fail thing. It's kind of a too big to care. There is a lot of complacency. I do walk into a Bank of America branch on occasion. It's not a pleasant experience if I have to go in there to get a cashier's check or something that they do not want to provision online. As I said before, it feels like they're doing me a favor in the wake of the financial crisis and the bailouts for my zero-yielding cash deposit. I have to pay something like $30 for a new checkbook. It, It seems really retrograde to me. So I did come to America when I was doing the reporting for this special report, and I actually used almost nothing from it because, honestly, it wasn't the most interesting things. The, you know, they're not happening in America. And you can ask why. And well, you know, one reason is they're too big to fail. Another reason is that, um, you know, regulators there and in the rest of the developed world are quite understandably have been quite preoccupied for the last decade with a completely different banking story. But the third reason really is that the way the regulations, the banking regulations work in America, they don't leave it, that space for that step-by-step growth into a new type of banking. So your mixture of federal and state regulations, and in particular the need to open branches, really screw up the business model that the neobanks in Britain and to some extent in Europe use. I mean, the only way that the economics of running a bank on your mobile phone works is that you don't pay for any branches. You have no awful legacy software sitting on mainframes. I mean, when these banks say that they're spending billions on software, part of the reason, by the way, is because their hardware is so terrible that they're having to spend enormous amounts. You know, By the way, many executives of, of these banks have been mega-merged overwhelmingly, even prior to the, the, you know, the shotgun weddings of 2008, 2009, say that the software systems from 28 years ago are not linked still, that these banks run as semi-autonomous fiefdoms internally within a mega-merged company. Absolutely. They really do. And if you think, how, what are you to do? You, I mean, at some point you start to think maybe I should just burn it, burn it all and start again. And in fact, there are a couple of the incumbent banks are doing that. They're setting up what are called flanker brands, which is an entirely separate brand, but it's in completely the same market. So this isn't, you know, somebody branching out and thinking, you know, well, I serve retail customers at the moment. Why don't I add small businesses or something like that? This is people saying, you know, I serve retail company customers at the moment. I'm going to set up a digital-only, mobile-only brand to com- to serve small customers. I'm going to compete with myself. And the reason they're doing that is they're really starting to think that at some point soon they're going to have to jump right across and move everything, move everything across hmm. to these new app-based, modular, off-the-shelf um, banking bits of software that are in the cloud, not on mainframes. And, you know, that's a high-risk thing to do. I mean, these sorts of transformations do tend to... Um, lead to disaster on occasion. On the other hand, what are you to do? Are you to keep your blooming 1980s software forever? <laughs> Joining us from London is Helen Joyce, finance editor of The Economist. I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Full Disclosure. Helen wrote the special cover story this week, Tech's Raid on the Banks, Digital Disruption is Coming to Banking at Last. I was struck by the stat that you threw in uh, your leader essay here. In Asia, payment apps are a way of life for over a billion users. In the West, mobile banking is reaching critical mass. Half of Americans bank on their phones, and tech giants are muscling in. Apple unveiled a credit card with Goldman Sachs. Facebook is proposing a payment service to let users buy tickets and settle bills. And that's the the question I want to kind of get at, that companies that have already, by dint of this smartphone revolution, the iPhone was introduced in, in what was it, mid 2007, the overlap, if you draw the Venn diagram, of people who are banked in the developing world and have smartphones, and then, moreover, people who aren't banked and have smartphones in emerging markets. The price of of uh, these little kind of computers and camcorders in your, in your palm that just plummet all the time. I wonder how fait accompli it is that uh, a company that's already there and ubiquitous in your life, that Apple 
or Google or Facebook by dint of, of Messenger and WhatsApp takes over the banking experience by default? Well, one question that people ask is, do they actually want to? I mean, it's the most regulated industry. I mean, financial services is more regulated than retail by a very long way. And within financial services, banking is just the most regulated bit of it. So I think you said the word complacency earlier for the incumbents in America. I think that's very true. But one of the reasons for that complacency is actually quite well grounded, which is that they just don't think that other people really want to be regulated like them. And so they think that they're safe from somebody like Amazon deciding to, you know, add current accounts to its offerings. And honestly, I'd love to know, does Amazon want to add current accounts to its offerings? You can see that it would work. You can see that it would make a lot of sense. On the other hand, current accounts aren't exactly big earners. I think they're what you call checking accounts. I know I keep saying current account, so checking account for your listeners. Um, They maybe just have better things to do, better things to do with their capital, better things to do with their attention. You know, do they want to go into pharmaceuticals or something where there's more money to be made? So it's not a fait accompli. It's certainly something they could do. It's just a question of whether they want to. Is that is that the next thing that they might want to do? Well, why did Apple add Nearfield's communication? Why did it offer Apple Pay, for example, just to make its core product more sticky? To make it more sticky and nicer, one of the consultants that I spoke to said that um, when you look at retail firms, when they get big, any retail offering, any firm that has several product lines, you know, several areas of, of retail uh, and a large share in a few of them, they say 20 to 25 percent market share in a few of them, they tend to move into payments. And the reason they do it is they want to control the customer experience from start to finish. They don't want someone else, you know, screwing it up right at the last minute for them. They want you to enjoy every bit of it. It's not actually massively about them saving the money that they would have to pay, you know, the credit card company for you using your credit card. So but once they do that, then they're in payments. And then they get data. And then after a while, you start to think, well, you know, we have all this data. We know this person will be good to lend to. So why don't we offer them a loan at point of sale and see if, you know, we can get them to convert this looking at these things in their basket into buying them, that sort of thing. Hmm. And step by step, you find yourself moving along a ladder if the, re- if the uh, regulator lets you. Why wouldn't the regulators let them if that uh, if if their willingness, especially with younger customers who end up, I'm talking about Venmo in the states, which is owned by PayPal, which then again goes back to its ancestral mm-hmm. heritage, the PayPal mafia and eBay, which acquired it, which was born out of kind of people using this auction service and wanting uh, uh, not to have to mail checks and wanting pre-verification. You talk to younger people in the states if somebody is buying something online or um, buying something off Facebook. A lot of times they are very happy to settle it over Venmo in large part. And this is a problem for the banking industry because Venmo is currently constituted, does not charge a transaction cost and you get instant payment. Now they're trying to add functionality and charges and everything to it. But I meet many 20-somethings and 30-somethings, I don't know if it's purely anecdotal, who would a thousand percent rather use Venmo than than go and work with a traditional bank and cut you a check and cut them, say, a 2% fee. Well, of course they would, because it's just much nicer. And that's back to the sort of customer experience bit of it. Well, you asked why the regulators might stop them. And so regulation on any subject anywhere is very historically dependent. You know, things happen in response to the last crisis. You know, the way people say regulators are always trying to stop the last crisis, not the next one. That's right. So if you look at any particular country, you're looking at a sort of historical document when you're looking at its regulations. And America's is more complicated than many countries because of the state federal divide. Then you've got all these regulations. You've got all these regulators who are defending their turf. You've also got people who lobby. 
And, you know, banks are big lobbyists. It's not like they don't know people in Washington and it's not like they're necessarily coming along and saying, you know, it's it's out of the goodness of our heart that you might want to simplify these regulations so that we can have these new competitors who will make banking very much nicer. You know, that would be something that had never happened in the history of any country. So... Some countries have regulations for whatever historical reason that allow people to move in, to go into just payments, to go up that ladder. Others don't. In America, you have particularly, you know, particularly burdensome red tape in banking. And yet you wrote, if you turn 18 this year, you are younger than Amazon and Google. You turn three with Facebook's arrival, four with YouTube, five with Spotify, six with the iPhone, and eight with WhatsApp. If you are at the upper end of the 18 to 30 age range considered in this special report, you will remember a time before mobile internet, but not a time before mobile phones. If you are anywhere in that range, you use your mobile to read, chat, and play, stream music and videos, hail taxis, order food, and search for dates and jobs. Research last year, you note by Radon, a consultancy, found that 85% of U.S. millennials, the ones born between 81 and 1996, used mobile banking and predicted that the share would be higher still for Gen Z, the ones born after 1996. Uh, half of millennials in the United States use peer-to-peer payment services such as Venmo or Zelle at least once a week. And the consultancy Bain um, asked in 17 countries which they would miss more for a day, their phone or their wallet. Everywhere except Japan and Malaysia, the share of under-25s who had missed their phone was above 70 percent. There has to be writing all over the wall for the banks that kind of paints the picture of this complacency. I have seen ads. I mean, they try to talk the talk. It used to be the the new fangled thing was you could take a picture of a check. You don't have to deposit it. But it's still stodgy. It seems like, you know, like a a much older middle-aged man with a paunch in his belly trying to fit into his high school jeans. I wonder, and you you flicked at it earlier, at what point they're going to feel like if we don't if we don't innovate, we're going to die because they are not signing up these young people the way their parents are. Well, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And if you take the sort of thirty thousand feet view, you know, you're you're in a plane and you're going over the landscape and you can see all the features really clearly. It is just not possible that banking keeps going the way that it is. It just isn't because people who you know, have their mobile phones with them the whole time and who expect to do absolutely everything, not just immediately and always and instantaneously in their hand, but that it's really, really nice as well, that the experience is nice. Uh, People take your data, yes, but they give you something wonderful in return. You can get where you're going, you can avoid traffic, that sort of thing. Uh, Those people are just not going to keep using these services. But then you've got the sort of irresistible force meets the immovable object problem. You cannot open a bank in America unless you satisfy the regulatory requirements. I mean, you just can't. So which gives first is an interesting question. And, you know, I can't really answer that. I do think that if an incumbent bank has smarts, it is doing a lot behind the scenes and they're not talking about so much to prepare to be the one that jumps first when they reckon that the dam breaks. Could it be that the dam breaks? you know what I mean? Yes. Could it be that the dam breaks? And I was thinking about this when Amazon came out of left field and bought Whole Foods. And in one fell swoop, you know, I think spending $14 billion in cash, which is chump change for them, disrupted, sent the entire grocery industry into existential angst. And I was talking with a hedge fund manager once who was a few years ago prodding Apple to buy MasterCard. Uh, that lets you control the entire – MasterCard has been a masterful investment ever since it IPO'd, I think, in the mid-aughts. It has done very well. The The profit margins are enormous. For Apple, if you're – and again, I'm taking you into the ledger domain of, of, of tech, and I, I understand that there was this was a cross-disciplinary cover package, but I think you could play along with it – that they would want to uh, get into kind of the recurring, smoother revenue things. At some point with Apple as a company that until recently had a – 
trillion dollar market cap, $200 billion in cash. In, in, in yesteryears, when you'd see an oil company or somebody approach those numbers, they would go out and branch into financial services. It would, it would be naturally appealing to them. And they may. But, you know, again, there are other options for them and there are other things competing for their headspace, like healthcare. And maybe it's on their list, but maybe it's just not right near the top of it. And one of the interesting speculations that I heard from several people was, you know, the most profitable thing that Amazon, say, does is its uh, cloud services. Well, who are their big customers and who are going to be the big growing customers for cloud services in the coming years? You know, banks. Will a bank really cut the sort of check that Amazon wants it to cut for cloud services if Amazon is also in banking? It might be that they're thinking hard about it. It's on their list, but it's just not right at the top. But listen, I don't have the massive insight into that. I'd love to know. If you find out, please tell me. But then I've, it's, it's a meaning of life question I've been asking people, and maybe this is just me posing my lament for the world. I've asked people ever since Apple Pay launched years ago, and they've done it. It hasn't exactly rocked the world. I mean, it's it's available no, maybe it really hasn't. one or five or one or six retailers I go to. It's really convenient for me, again, because I can leave my wallet elsewhere. I can just tap on the thing. The receipt maintenance, the 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 jibing with uh, you know the American Express app on my phone, but I, I can't get anybody to break out the economics for me to kind of counterfactualize. If Apple controlled the entirety of that experience, suppose every credit card node in the United States that had a Mastercard, Amex, and Visa Electron uh, payment system had uh, a, a kind of a dumb terminal Apple phone that you could tap on, and they could control the entirety of the transaction. No one has been able to kind of explain that to me in spite of the fact that everybody has either an Apple or Google smartphone in their wallets. And that's kind of the question I pose to so many people. So the fee, the, just the straightforward part of that uh, as a business proposition is that you charge a swipe fee if you're a card, interchange fee or swipe key. Yeah, what is a swipe fee? I mean, we're talking 200 basis points, two percentage points? Only in America. My God, you guys get massively overcharged for some things. I mean, in the in the EU, in the European Union, it's never more than 0.2%. Okay, so why, aren't there, why, why wouldn't the retailers clamor, and this is in your province squarely again, why wouldn't the yeah. retailers clamor for something cheaper? Come here, Apple, disrupt that. And somebody will. I mean, it is not the case that a retailer is going to be paying 2 or 3% uh, in 20 years' time or probably even 10 years' time. But in the meantime, a lot of that money doesn't actually go back to the card issuers. It gets recycled by the card issuers into their loyalty schemes. Your loyalty schemes are much, much better in America than those in Europe. I mean, if you're taking 0.2% of the cost, you are not able to run a loyalty scheme. If you're taking 2%, you can. And then customers in America have got trained to look for good loyalty schemes. So I did talk to people while I was over in New York last time and say, you know, what card do you have? Why did you choose that card? And people routinely say, oh, because it offers great, um, you know, reductions on Friday evenings in this restaurant that I like to go to, or it offers excellent airline points and I travel a lot. I don't hear that in Europe because there just aren't such schemes because the swipe fees aren't so high. So you've settled into this model of high swipe fees, but rather good loyalty schemes. And Europe really hasn't. So the high swipe fees, good loyalty schemes, isn't the retailer like the pharmacy ultimately tacking on? Am I paying for that? It's a, it's a collectivization of, of that charge. There's no free lunch. There is no free lunch. I mean, that 2% means that you're paying 2% extra on what you buy in that store. But you're getting maybe 1% of it back on cheaper flights in the future. So when there are higher charges, but a lot of them go back, there is more room for a higher margin. Of course there is. So your card issuers do make more in America than they do in Europe. And if you imagine some very big player, I mean, Amazon is, again, the obvious one. You know, Amazon could disrupt this tomorrow because it has such a high share of all retail. And then they would just have, like, no swipe fees, no interchange fees, zero cost. But by the way, 
any loyalty that you're going to get, of course, it's going to be something that's good to them in some other way. And then we come back to it's going to be an Amazon Prime reduction or something like that. It's going to be in free deliveries or it's going to be that if you spend more money with us, you will get this. So you can see how the business model could change and it could flip immediately. You'll still get loyalty stuff, but it's not going to be coming out of your swipe fee. It's going to be because you're spending on their platform. That's a business model that people talk about routinely. Helen, who has the clout uh, when you step back and look at the planet on this? Is it uh, are the are the the platforms, the tech platforms, let's say Apple, iOS, Google with Android, Facebook with Messenger and WhatsApp, maybe to a certain extent Amazon and that it gets in in other things. You talk about Asia and and uh, Ant and these other things like Alipay. Uh, you talk about the ride sharing services and in some places that have suddenly the the the, the functionality of, of payments have become bigger than the ride services themselves. Could a bank like an HSBC or a Standard Charter then turn around, like a decidedly global bank, and say, we have the clout, we have the infrastructure, we have the regulatory uh, stamps, all the ones you need, Apple, Amazon, you need us more, it behooves you to sign with us preemptively? Well, there are several banks that are in that position. So Amazon, for example, it could be talking right now to banks and saying, you know, who'd like to partner with it, or it might think to herself, this just isn't its priority at the moment. But Amazon is in a stronger position, in my opinion, than the banks are. There are more banks, more big banks that are like each other than there are big tech firms that are like each other. But no, you haven't seen in your in your travels, I mean, you've, you've been on several continents for this story, kind of a cross-continental arbitrage, somebody that already has approval to operate across these various countries, across democratic and totalitarian and less democratic regimes where your the the holy grail is uh, reducing the friction and the payments and the the currency and forex difficulties of just allowing the the least friction ridden person to person transaction across the planet. No one no one has come close to doing that yet. Well, regulators in each country will want their uh, their pound of flesh, won't they? They'll want to have their um, chance to oversee what's happening on their um, territory. And of course, by the way, they're absolutely right because when things go wrong with banks, it's taxpayers that are on the hook. So regulators are thinking about their own taxpayer in each uh, taxpayers in each country. But there are a few of the neobanks, the European and British neobanks, that are um, really thinking hard about operating in lots of countries. So you may hear quite soon about Revolut and N26 and Starling and Monzo, which are four neobanks that um, three of them, I think, started in Britain and one of them on the continent of Europe. Um, They really are keen on um, having completely branchless, cross-border operations and really very cheap foreign exchange. I mean, that's how some of them started, actually, was just in doing very cheap foreign exchange. And then, you know, if you move from country to country, well, you're still the same person. They still know who you are. It's still the same passport, still the same phone, still the same fingerprint. And if they have a license to operate in other countries, then they can just kind of seamlessly move you with them. And of course, the place where this is going to happen first is the European Union because it has single banking, single banking supervision. I mean, there are regulators in each country, of course, but they are very, very um, uh, seamlessly cooperate. Uh, So some of them are actually EU-wide at the moment and you can move around in the EU and still use the same bank. They're starting to think how they could do that elsewhere as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Helen Joyce. She's joining us from London. She's the finance editor at The Economist, uh, wrote the special cover package this week, Tech's Raid on the banks at long last. If you could explain something for our listeners, Helen, and that you are the, the finance and banking editor, what to what extent are the credit card companies, the plastic companies, allowed to go and, and be free agents in representing themselves in this, in this land grab? And to what extent are they beholden to the traditional regulated banks? 
Um, I, I just want to know, for example, an American Express, which is very different from a Visa, which is a payment system, or a MasterCard, or a Capital One. And then you start getting into traditional too-big-to-fail banks like Chase, which is part of J.P. Morgan, and it has Washington Mutual and Providian and all of these dozens of other regional banks involved in it. Uh, who who, who of, the, of the traditional, if we call it, financial services sector can, can afford to be most nimble and self-interested right now? Gosh, that's a really difficult question. I mean, it just varies so much from country to country according to the regulation. And I would, you know, my full disclosure is I don't think that I'd be able to answer that question for the United States. I just don't know um, which, which, which of those are regulated where, where they've incorporated or that sort of thing. I mean, generally speaking, what you want if you are looking for somewhere that's going to be very innovative in retail banking, you want a country that offers something that's called something like an e-money license. Because that is what is going to allow you to start off by doing what looks a bit like a prepaid debit card. They're allowed to hold your cash. They're not allowed to make loans to you. They're, you know, quite regulated in what they can do. And then if they get a name for themselves, they can start to do more. And to the best of my knowledge, America makes that very hard. So you're not going to see anybody in America until those sort of regulations change, unless one of the giants just decides to do it all in one go. How difficult is it to start a new asset-like bank in America? How difficult is it if you just want – we don't have we don't want to have a branch. We want to be in 50 states. We want to be low cost. We want to funnel all of the overhead back to the user uh, in the way of maybe a higher teaser interest rate. We want to have FDIC assurance. Is that is that impossible to do? It's pretty much impossible. You do have a couple of banks, neobanks. You've got Moven and you've got Simple. Um, they're neither of them big brand names, although they're both very nice to use and very like the British neobanks that are doing pretty well here. But both of them have to have partners with white label banks. So these are banks that are regulated banks. They have branches. They are able to hold deposits and so on. But their brand names are names you've never heard of. Um, I think Green Dot, for example, is one. It's actually a, you know, a big and good bank, but it's not a customer-facing brand. They work with other people who do the branding. They don't just work with banks like neobanks. They work with um, people who want to do payments, you know, re other sorts of firms that want to do regulated banking activities, and the white-label bank does that for them. So Moven and Simple have to work in partnership with such banks in America. They would not have to if they were in Europe. Helen, uh, you know, when I started reading your essay, you talked about the double uh, creative destruction of uh, clearly the smartphone being launched circa 2007, 2008, and, and that being such a huge, almost Edisonian, once-in-a-century technology, but also the financial crisis and all the different undercapitalized banks, the failed banks, the banks that were forced to mega-merge, uh, take government bailouts. The, the most paradoxical headline, I think, when I, when I read this, and it's almost an afternote, is Marcus, the bank by Goldman Sachs. And you open up the page and it says, no fee personal loans, high-yield online savings, you can money. That's, that's what they trademark. You can get a loan, no fee fixed-rate loans from $3,500 to $40,000. And start saving. Their online savings account is at two and a quarter percent, which is quite higher than the, the median, you know, quoted by bank rate here of the traditional competitors. One, it's really paradoxical to me that a company that is, uh, I remember in wealth management, they would not take any commitment less than $10 million from a client. So that they've been willing to go kind of blue collar and mom and pop here to the extreme is surprising. But it's also a very tech savvy and attractive uh, uh, company for the likes of Apple, for example, for its credit card to partner with. Yeah, that's definitely one to watch, isn't it? I mean, 
all these different sort of firms that I talked about in Asia, these different paths to full service retail banking, you know, they're things that are in low income countries or middle income countries. What's that path for different sorts of firms? I mean, Goldman is already massively established. It doesn't need a path anywhere. But if it wants to do something different, it has to start somewhere, doesn't it? Um, I, I think what I would say about Marcus is it's really one to watch. I mean, that is a very good rate. That is a way for them to get capital in. Um, of course, it's sort of freestanding and it's like these neobanks in that it doesn't rely on old-fashioned mainframe computers. It doesn't need branches. It's just doing one thing and then it can start to do a second thing. Yeah, interesting. And the other counterfactual is if, if Apple were to suddenly announce tomorrow, and it was adjacent to the announcement a couple of weeks ago with that Goldman-branded credit card maybe as a foot in the door, is if they were to launch a national bank of Apple, do you have any doubt that they would get many, many, many people who would sign up for it? They already You already trust Apple with your transactions. You've given them your credit card. You, you pay them for the iCloud service. Again, I know this is twisting you back into the realm of tech, but it, I think it just underscores for us how much these worlds are converging. It absolutely does. I mean, the issue for Apple is that it expects very large profit margins on the things that it does. And traditionally, retail banking is not a massively high profit business. The, re you know, the margins are not that huge. Now, at that point, you have to say to yourself, the margins are not that huge the way it's being done at the moment, because the costs are so enormous. You know, banks typically spend about half of everything they take in just on branches and stuff like that. And then you add in their terrible computers and it's more. So if you had neither of those things, you could do banking, perhaps with higher profit margin. But at the moment, Apple's tech business, the sorts of things that it goes into, they are nowhere near as low as the sort of margins that you get in retail banking. Yes, we'd use it, but they wouldn't want to do it at that sort of price. You did write that, um, you know, looking at traditional banking, branches and the associate staff are responsible for as much as half of a high street bank's cost. And if it is still running on legacy mainframe, three quarters of its IT budget is likely to go on keeping the lights on, which sells cloud native banking software. Industry insiders say that a conventional bank has to make in the region of two to four hundred dollars a year per customer to break even, and each new account adds significant marginal cost. For a neo bank, even including product development, customer acquisition, and so on, the equivalent figure is around fifty to sixty dollars, and the marginal cost of maintaining each extra account is close to zero. I mean, we're told about all of this. It's all up in the cloud right now. It's frictionless. You can add people. You can build scale. The network effects, there's such a multiplier effect with four or five platforms that every incremental user is more is banking to the bottom line than, than, than cost. Um, do you have any predictions of, of, of who, you see, who you see emerging? If you had to look into your crystal ball in five or 10 years, um, you know, our, our kid right now, suppose, you know, my 10-year-old, and once he starts college, what is he going to be making payments with? So this is something I so tried so hard to find a way to get around writing in the special report. Like, you know, I can see what it's going to look like in sort of 10 to 15 years. And I can't see because I'm, honestly, if I could, I'd be putting all my money in it. And, you know, I'm not. I can't see who it's going to be. So I can see... Like if you went back 10 or 20 years, you know, would you know which one of the browsers was going to be Chrome? You wouldn't. You know, you might have put your money in Netscape. <laughs> That's um, right. but, but, you, but you know the browser is going to be amazing. You can imagine the sort of thing it's going to do. You just don't know which firm is going to win and which one is going to go bust. So let's just pick a few scenarios as the best I can do for you. It's a massive cheat, this. It's the consultant's cheat, you know. Where they sure. Say, let's, let's offer you three scenarios rather than tell you who to put your money in. Right. So one would be that somebody like Amazon does decide that they want to be the ant financial of America and of Europe, and in fact, then the world quickly. Um, and if they do that, then you could see it's like Amazon Prime. People already have it. They just add their checking account to that. 
you know, the, my persistent doubt is, is that something that's a priority for a company like Amazon? And if it does it, will it do it with one of the big name banks or will it just find itself like a white label partner? There's one scenario for you. Another one is Ant Financial itself. It certainly had ambitions for sort of global domination a few years ago. They're very much not saying that now because of the regulatory pushback they've had both within China and in America. You may remember that they wanted to make a big acquisition in America. I think it was MoneyGram, wasn't sure. it? And the regulator blocked yeah, it. Yeah, that was thwarted. So, that was thwarted. I mean, could you just yeah. qu- quickly detour as to why that was a kind of a national security thing, that the acquisition of MoneyGram by a, an international player? Well, it was an international security thing in the sense that that's you know, that was what was said. I'm not sure it actually was a national security thing exactly. Um, I mean, certainly, and this is not something I heard from Ant Financial. I mean, they, you know, it's not something I heard from them directly, but people in China do say, well, you know, this is a very politicized process. Um, they they were kept out. I don't know why they were. Um, but their own regulators, of course, are pushing back on them moving too fast as well. So they've now started very much to say, you know, we see our role as helping the incumbents. We see our role as partnering with them, helping them to become more tech savvy. We also see ourselves as moving into company countries where there is white space for us, like middle income countries. We're not trying to do world domination. Well, a few years ago, that is really not the way that the company was presenting itself through PR folks to journalists. They were like, you know, you need to talk to this firm because they're the sort of firm you're going to be putting on the cover. Mm. So that's a second possibility is that somebody like Ant Financial really does decide that they're going to go global. Um, another one is that one of the neobanks, um, I mean, they they talk very big, some of them. I mean, they're, they're fintechs. They, they're used to doing the presentations to venture capitalists where you have to talk big about yourself and you have to bandy enormous growth numbers around. But they will say things to you like, you know, well, we're going to open in another 20 countries in the next two years. And, you know, we see ourselves having 200 million customers and in 10 years time and so on. So, well, you know, one of them could do it. You'd have found it ridiculous if, if Amazon had said that to you in the early days, but it did do it. So... You know, there could be a name that you haven't heard of today that is the Amazon of banking in 10 years' time. And then another possibility is that one of the big banks, either via a flanker brand, um, you know, one of these sort of mobile-only ones that it stands beside itself as a sort of a, a raft if the innovation all comes a bit more quickly than they expected, they can escape onto it. Maybe one of the uh, the established banks then does actually pull itself together and really become a mixture of a tech firm and a, um, and a traditional bank. And by the way, that will be a firm of a level of power in the economy and the world, the like of which we have never seen, because it would be a firm that combined the power of money and the power of data and information. I mean, Amazon is, at the moment, it's the information, likewise Google. It's not the we hold your money as well. I mean, they would be terrifying, actually, those sorts of firms. Well, I was I was talking to one of the founders, actually, of Capital One about this, is what was the possibility of, of maybe not using it in a nefarious way? If you're my credit card provider, you have such a window into my purchasing habits. You could put out predictive offers and coupons and resell the stuff to the stores and anonymize it. You could theoretically, as an information company, take that that information and pay it back to the 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 user as a kind of a, a an information dividend. For example, if you opt into these things and you make you make us you know anonymize your information and sell it to third parties, we will give you a higher interest rate. We will give you other functionality. We will pay for Wi-Fi services across airports. Could could it, does it necessarily have to be nefarious and evil when big information pairs up with big banking? 
No, it doesn't. But that's when regulators really do need to be smart. So the wrong way for a regulator to think about all of this is this is change. It's scary. We don't want it to happen. We don't want big disruption in what is you know the most fundamental pillar of the economy. The right way for them to think about it is these changes are coming. Let's make sure that it doesn't turn into the sort of nefarious version of the future. And actually, it turns into the version of where we all have better banking. It's nicer. To, you know, we have more control over our money. We're spending better. Um, and the information is being used in sensible ways to benefit us, not just uh, be sold on in nefarious ways. And that's a regulator's job, I think. But yes, these banks are thinking, especially the neobanks that don't want to be holding very large balance sheets, but want to think of themselves as platforms where you would go for financial services and possibly other sorts of services. What they say is that they're... Um, they're aligned with their users and their customers in their interests because what they want is for you to trust them, really trust them. They want to make a cut when you decide who you buy your home insurance from. They want to make a cut when you decide um, who you get your mortgage from and so on. And to do that, you they have to be able to persuade you that they are on your side of the table. Like at the moment when you think of going into a bank branch, you think of approaching your bank for a loan, you feel like a supplicant. Mm. But also you don't think that it's necessarily their job to think, do you actually need this loan? Uh, is this loan going to help you to uh, reach your life goals? Is it going to give you the better job that's going to give you the return that you hope it is? You don't, you don't see that as part of their job. They're not on your side of the table. Well, if you want to be a new sort of bank that is making its money from uh, being the trusted supplier of all financial services and maybe other sorts of services. You've got to be on the customer side of the table. And that means not lending them money that they don't need. It means really actually helping them make decisions you know, not to get overdrawn, for example. Sure. So it's a completely different sort of business model. Helen Joyce, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left with you, I just want to bring it back to this idea of kind of the, the, the fat margins that you could kind of run a super tanker through. I'm looking at an IFM, uh, an IMF uh, a blog report that came out a few days ago just on remittances, which is something we really didn't get into in your cover package. But fintech, for example, can cost cut costs of remittances to Latin America. It's just taking Latin America. I did not realize that... Um, Cross-border payments right now assess around a 6% charge on the total amount, and these fees are typically paid by the sender. You see it with the lament of, say, the Mexican-American worker, the Nicaraguan worker, um, service worker in uh, Los Angeles or New York, that it's such a almost like a borderline usurious amount. And Latin America's use of mobile money both to send and receive remittances is relatively low, despite the region's high share in total world remittances, which was about $81 billion in 2017. My question to you, and this comes back to your traditional beat, is how are these fat margins, anywhere there's been fat margins in newspaper advertising or in you know the $18 CD, they've been rapidly disrupted and rapidly disintermediated by tech. How is it that somebody hasn't come in and, and a third party, and you're saying is it because of regulatory hurdles to say I'm willing to accept a far smaller margin to be able to build bigger volume? It's definitely, definitely happening. I mean, one reason that I didn't do it in the special report is just that we've done it in the finance section in you know in several times we've looked at how this is going. I mean, everybody everybody that I spoke to for this special report took it as a given that in ten years' time, these particularly. Uh, these particularly fat extra fees, in particular for foreign exchange and for going overdrawn, that those things will be gone. And probably the interchange fees too. They're the, they're the nice to have bits of banking. I mean, core banking, core retail banking makes its money from the spread. But those things are delightful for banks as well. They're going to be gone. Uh, they are starting to, and it is, it is not an instantaneous thing to do. And you said the dread word, why regulation? 
Um, if you want to send money across borders, you are coming up against um, anti-money laundering rules. Um, so if you make it really easy to you know, open your phone, send some money, no one knows where that money came from, to a person, no one knows who that person is in another country, um, in particular America's government is going to say, are you sure that there's no terrorism flow here? Are you sure there isn't any money laundering here? And you know, America's regulations on both of those have extraterritorial reach and are absolutely terrifying for everybody worldwide. So unless you've got a big corridor of uh, foreign exchange, you know, you've got a really big group of people going from one place to another, it's not actually worthwhile taking that risk in case America goes and charges you $10 billion in case, you know, one person that you sent the money to is actually, you know, a terrorist. But what about what about these upstarts that are doing peer-to-peer lending? If you are dissatisfied, if I walk into my bank, and this is what I don't understand, that bank, well, how are bank profits not gangbusters if they're still, you know, 10 years after the financial crisis, paying zero interest on a lot of checking accounts? They, there's nothing really keeping them honest. They're upset about the the yield curve and in theory they should be elated in taking all that money and, and and be lending it out at a fat margin but they aren't doing it and players like Kiva and others are coming in and and doing these portfolios of peer-to-peer loans and being able to offer people outside above average interest rate for what they claim are are not uh, huge risks to take do you see for example the peer-to-peer lenders having a role in this Well, peer-to-peer lending hasn't been around long enough for it to be assessed through a downturn, like through a severe downturn. So we just don't know. I mean, it's easy enough... And this is, this is not a criticism of any particular firm. This is just a general observation. You know, businesses of all sorts get set up when times are good or when um, people are confident. And then they get tested in their first downturn. A lot of them get washed out. So some of the firms that have, are saying, we can do this, we can do it with good profit margins, we can offer you know, higher rates than other people, they're going to get washed out when there's a severe downturn. And banks have been through many of them before. Um, so that's one thing is that they're, uh, they're setting their margins and so on to keep them big cushions. And of course, they're required to keep enormous uh, capital cushions, much larger than they were before the financial crisis. They just have to have a lot of cash on hand. They're not allowed to just be lending it all out like that. Um, that's a big part of why they um, are still offering such terrible rates to everybody. Um, I don't think that peer-to-peer itself will ever get big enough to be a really large part of the whole system. It's just because it's rather hard to organise, you know. It's it's um, it's kind of artisanal um, finance, you know. It's not the sort of like everybody just putting their salary in, everybody just looking to get loans to buy cars and houses, which is just the big part of things. You know, you've covered, uh, and, and again, I'm coming in at all directions with you, as I warned you at the very top that I, I was going to wonk out with you, right? It's it's crazy. One of the huge beneficiaries in the United States of the financial crisis uh, has been Vanguard, the index fund firm. And a lot of the, the question that a lot of people pose is that here you have a company, it's a great user interface, it's, uh, it's not fat in that it needs to pay its executives that much and has huge overhead costs. It's already amassed $5.3 trillion in assets around the world. World, has people invested in their funds the world over. And you could say a lot about BlackRock and the other beneficiaries of it. Is it that difficult for them? And, and they, they spend quite a bit in technology because it's innovate or die on the app and on the smartphone for them to go into banking and maybe offer it as a loss leader. It would depend how many bits of banking they offered and it would depend on um, how those bits were regulated. I wish I didn't have to keep saying the word regulate. It's like the death word in my section of the paper. You know, everyone gets turned off when they hear banking regulation. But, you know, if you're not allowed to do something without holding very large amounts of cash back, then, you know, it may just not be worth doing. Even if 
you're going to get loads of customers and everybody's going to say, yes, that's the person I'd like to get this from. It just may not add up for them. It may be that simple. Why does regulation work as the refrain response back on, on something like banking and not like when I look at an Uber, which is about to go public and amass a $90 billion valuation, when Travis Kalanick was starting this company and envisioned it in his mind eyes, mind's eye, he didn't say, oh, we're going to be thwarted by all the taxi cab regulators across the United States. This will never fly in New York. This will never fly in in uh, you know, in Kenya or other places. But there's something about tech people that, that says, do it anyway and ask for forgiveness, not for permission. What you're yeah, saying, regulation is pungent enough and entrenched enough and powerful enough, the special interest, that it could thwart that, that, that life force? So suppose Uber went bust. Suppose it, uh, it has its IPO. Uh, it's just coming up, yeah? And maybe they get their 90 billion or whatever it is they're expecting to get. Um, and then they go bust. And all of it's wiped out and every single shareholder gets nothing back. What happens? bunch of people lose some money. Now, what happens if a bank goes bust is that houses are foreclosed on, businesses close. The ripple effect through the whole economy is absolutely enormous. The personal cost is huge. You know, people kill themselves after there are bank runs and bank closures. And banks have been, you know, going through these sorts of runs and closures for centuries. If you look back at the 1920s, 1930s, and you see the bank closures and you see people jumping out of windows when banks collapsed, that's why. So every time there's a downturn, the regulation gets stricter. And it gets stricter because people want it to, because they don't want to see the entire economy knocked over because a bank uh, went bust. There was a run on the bank. It's just not like that in any other business. You know, if even the world's biggest restaurant chain, if McDonald's went bust, McDonald's would go bust. If Uber goes bust, Uber goes bust. If an airline goes bust, some holidaymakers have to get home some other way. When a big bank goes bust, it ripples right out through the economy and you have a big problem. So there has to be regulation. It's just different. So, I mean, people like Uber and that, yeah, they did it. They they did things and then, you know, regulators came in, came in afterwards and said, but you don't have a taxi. You, you don't have a license for taxis or Airbnb. You don't, you're not a hotel. You know, they could try it and then they could start arguing with the regulator. That is just not what banking is like. You can't do it unless you have the regulatory piece of paper. You just can't. And the regulator is risk averse for very good reasons because of the terrible things that happen when banks collapse. Finally, Helen, in the two minutes we have left with you, if there's one thing, if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a funeral or a bat mitzvah and said, Helen, what is the one takeaway I need to take from this sprawling cover package on tech disrupting the banks? What is the one thing you wish people knew uh, or the one, the one thing that's going to move the needle the most? For individuals, I think it's that you could be having a lot more fun with your money and you could be um, managing your money a lot better and getting more insight into what you spend on and how you could save. So I haven't done a sort of a check, you know, a personal financial check for a long time. Um, but I've, you know, I've changed what I'm using on my phone for how I look after my money and how I pay. Um, I've also got an app that allows me to link my child's pocket money uh, to um, to an app that I control and he can get a little card even though he's too young to get a card normally and I'm going to start saving with an app that uses insights from behavioural economics to help people to save more. You know, we could all be just managing our money a lot better and enjoying ourselves along the way more now. You know, I, I have these worries I, I, in closing. How am I going to start to pay my son and daughter an allowance if I never keep cash? And two, if we do put up an, uh, a lemonade cart in front of the street or sell muffins, no one driving by is carrying cash anyway. But these are all existential concerns for our next interview. Helen, Joyce, I cannot thank you enough. That was great fun talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Likewise. Helen Joyce, finance editor of The Economist, was joining us from London. One last time, make sure you definitely catch this week's cover package in The Economist, Tech's Rate on the Banks. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this show on NPR.org. 
the NPR One app, and NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News. And of course, on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Rate us highly because I, I subsist on your validation. Special events and ticket info additionally is available at facebook.com slash fulldradio. We are adjustable rate amortizers of tier one mobile ready content delivered weekly never delinquent thank you for your interest i'm robin farzad back with you next week (laughs) 